Portions of the day's programming are reproduced by means of electrical transcriptions or tape recordings. Time for School, Rock School, with your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns. Did you hear Les Bon Temps Roulet? Let the good times roll. Close enough there. Sure. Close enough. Was it, did I say it wrong? Class is in. This is the Rock School Radio Show, emanating from the campus of Southeastern Louisiana University. How do you feel about that, Monique? How that's do you feel about cool. How do you feel about emanating? Yeah, that's that's fun. When's the last time in your life you emanated? Huh? <laughs> uh, my name is Joe Burns. You are? Monique Gregoire. Fantastic. Uh, where are you actually from? Are you from New Orleans? I'm from New Roads, New Roads. is about two hours okay. from New Orleans. Yeah, obviously north, because if you go south, you get very, very, very wet. <laughs> you fall right into that gulf. Uh are you familiar with the name Cosmo Matassa? I'm not. You're not? Okay. It's spelled Cosimo with an I stuck in there, but pronounced Cosmo. He died on September 11th at age 88. Okay. And again, doesn't ring a bell, anything like no, that? No, but I, it seems okay. like I should know this. J&M Recording Studio, doesn't ring a bell, none of that kind of stuff? No. Okay. No. He is, without a doubt, and I'm not just saying, oh, gee, I think this. Uh, I'm, I'm telling you what the music world believes. He is the absolute engineer of the New Orleans sound. Hmm. And many people believe he is the man who created the first rock and roll song. As a matter of fact, he has two songs that people believe are in the running, if not have won the first rock and roll song contest. Really? I mean, they're before the songs. They're before Rock Around the Clock. Mm-hmm. They're before um, uh, Rocket 88, things mm-hmm. like that. And I'm going to tell you who he is, why we should care about him, why he was really the king of New Orleans music, and again, the engineer of the New Orleans sound. And we're going to talk about that New Orleans sound, why it seems to only work in New Orleans. Right. Everybody comes to New Orleans, <laughs> and they go to Preservation Hall, and they go to these different places and they listen to this piano based stuff with a thick piano on top of it. Dr. Mm. John type music. Right. It works like a dream within this 30 mile range that is New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Move it to Dallas. Does it work? Mm. Move it to Chicago. Does it work? Yeah. I see what you're saying. Right. Pittsburgh, Albuquerque, Seattle, you know, Boise, Idaho. Mm hmm. Would Professor Longhair play in those places? I'm sure people would come to see him. Right. Is it a music that rules the the place? Right. It wouldn't be embraced like right. it is down here. However, Cosmo Matassa, during his years at the helm of JM Studio, and then later his second studio, uh, he had four in total, mm-hmm. he created music that did hit the chart, that did take New Orleans out into the world, and we're going to play a lot of it. As a matter of fact, he was so well-known in the world of early rock and roll that artists ran from their states to New Orleans because it was believed there was something magical about this room that he had. Huh. The, I mean, the world came from this room. The sound came from this room. Hits right. came from this room. So we'll begin with one everybody knows, Chris Kenner. I like it like that. My guess is you don't know it by Chris Kenner, but from the JNM studios, and we'll tell you about it. It was a one take. 
It was practice it twice, gentlemen. Huh. One, two, three, go. So what you're hearing here is live. I like it like that here on Rock School. Talking Cosmo Matassa, he died September 11th at the age of 88, member of the Louisiana Songwriters Hall of Fame, also the National Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And by the way, until he died, you could have met him. You could have shaken his hand because he and his family owned a grocery store down in the French Quarter. And it's something I didn't do. I probably should have gone down there and sought him out. Oh, yeah. yeah I made a point of going to see the J&M Studios, uh-huh. but never then went that step farther and went to actually see Cosmo Matassa, which I probably should have done, but you know they're sick of that. His family owns a grocery store. Right. Constantly walking in. Where's Cosmo? Where's Cosmo? <laughs> you know, are you sure you don't want some groceries? Where's Cosmo? You know, people like me. Ready for this? 250 nationally charting singles, 21 gold records, all recorded at the J&M Studios. They came to create what was known as the Cosmo Sound. Strong drums, heavy bass, Light piano, guitar, and horns, also simply known as the New Orleans sound. Hmm. Okay, so let's talk about he, the man, Cosmo. I know it's spelled Cosimo, but it's pronounced Cosmo. Cosmo Vincent Matassa, born New Orleans, August 13th, 1926, again, 88 when he died, Mm -hmm. studied chemistry at Tulane University, but dropped out after five semesters. It just happened. He said, I don't want to be a chemist. Right. And he walked away. However, he was really good at tinkering with things. So he buys an old grocery store with a partner with the idea of turning it into an appliance store. And as a sideline, Uh he sells records. Okay. Well, people are buying the records. (laughs) They're not buying the washing machines and the refrigerators and such. Mm -hmm. I'm sure they are, but it's the records that are doing the good stuff for him. Mm -hmm. There was also a jukebox business in there. His father owned a jukebox business. And that's where the money is being made. So that's where they start to slowly but surely push themselves and such Mm -hmm. until it's suggested to him, hmm, if they're buying the records... Why don't we make the records? That's crazy. Aha! And that's where it starts to come from. Here's another one from the JNM Studios. One take. I'm going to explain to you in the next break why it was one take. Mm-hmm. This is Ernie K. Doe, a disc jockey in the New Orleans area, but he came in and recorded. It's Mother in Law here on Rock School. Mother in Law.
Bernie K. Doe, it's mother-in-law here on Rock School. You know, when my, my wife and I, when I was a disc jockey full-time, mm-hmm. my wife and I had a disc jockey setup, a mobile setup that right. we went around with. And when we did weddings, we had all these little things that were set up. We had four songs in a row that were all dance songs, mm-hmm. you know, the twist and things like that. And right. we would teach people how to do the dances and then play the songs two or three times in a row. And sometimes people were into it and sometimes they weren't. But mm-hmm. when we played weddings, we played Ernie K. Doe's mother-in-law. And <laughs> some people found it funny. Some mm-hmm. people didn't. And we learned the hard way to <laughs> ask first do you find this funny would you find this interesting because we were at a wedding one time and we just sprang it on the people mm-hmm. and we thought someone would find it funny no, no one found <laughs> it funny we cut the song off halfway through wow it, it cleared the dance floor and they glared at us as if we had you know horns coming out of our head i mean <laughs> i even got on mic and apologized i'm sorry we thought that would be funny <laughs> ha 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 yeah and if you cut it off in the middle that had to be pretty bad it, it was terrible so <laughs> all right let's talk about cosmo matassa's studio mm-hmm. in the back of this appliance store and there are great stories about musicians who come in to record walking past you know the percolators mm-hmm. uh, and the, the you know the the things you could put in your home to get back to the uh, to the studio uh, it gets underway around 1945 uh, I, I couldn't quite get it exactly but somewhere around when he was 18 he opens the JM recording studio in the back of his family's place Rampart Street mm-hmm. the French Quarter in New Orleans and again I've been to it it's one of those things where if you're not looking for it you'll miss it yeah. you go right past it it's a national landmark. It's been set as a national landmark. It's 15 by 16 feet, which is about the size of the room we're in. Right. And let's remember, he had a grand piano stuck in that room. That's insane. Stick a grand piano in this room. Mm-hmm. How much room do you have left? Now, you got you to stick a drum kit in here as right. well. Now, on top of that, you would think it's a recording studio. Mm-hmm. So he has a full audio board. He has a full recording setup, which would have been tape back then. Right. Right. And multiple microphones. And it's going into a series of power amps and all of that kind of it's stuff. It's a lot more space. Sure, sure, sure. None of that existed. Mm-hmm. He didn't have the money. What he had was a vacuum tube power amplifier. That's it. Mm-hmm. And the four microphones that he had, sometimes I read that he had three microphones. I mean, okay, three, four, great. Yeah. He had... X number of microphones going straight into the power amplifier, no board, mm-hmm. so he had no real control over the microphones. Any uh-huh. alteration that he made to the mics because it was straight into the power amplifier was grand. What? Instead of yeah. being able to make little tiny changes to the mic with an audio board, mm-hmm. he also uh, only had a machine that would cut directly to acetate disc. So he cut the master of the record uh-huh. immediately. That's it's not amazing. like you went to tape and then had it cut to a master, mm-hmm. where tape would allow you to do it again and again and again and again and again. You had one shot at it, mm-hmm. and you had three minutes. Why three? Well, that's all the more time the acetate disc would cut. Oh. And if you went over three minutes, I don't care how wonderful you are, mm-hmm. the acetate disc shut off. So it was said by some of the musicians, and I'll talk about the musicians who played with him. Um, It was said, we practiced it two or three times, and the slow songs were the hard ones. Because you have a guy up there just 
you know, honey dripping and oh, la, 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 and three minutes is over. Yeah. And it's, you know, you don't want to keep wasting acetate discs because it costs and they put all of this together. Mm-hmm. So when you hear an old Cosmo Matassa song, mm-hmm. you got to remember there were not overdubs and oh we'll fix it in the mix and oh we'll try it a thousand times this was raw it was raw it was live it was gentlemen practice it once twice do we have it one two three go that's crazy and what you hear is exactly what it was live it used to be that music existed only for the time span that it was played and Mm -hmm. then it was gone once the echo died it was gone that's done and this is this is what it sounded like if you went to new orleans this is what it sounded like because it wasn't overdubbed it wasn't altered it wasn't changed no reverb Mm -hmm. only the sound of the room yeah that's what you gotta think that's why it was so great yeah i think so this is one of the first songs that many people believe is the first rock and roll song. Roy Brown, Good Rockin' Tonight, recorded in the Cosimo Matassa studio. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine, j studio. It is two minutes and 57 seconds. You have <laughs> to know they were sweating it just a little bit watching the disc. It's Roy Brown, Good Rockin' Tonight, here on Rock School. <laughs> Okay, coming out and into the first break, Roy Brown's Good Rockin' Tonight. We just played it. Want to hear something make you want to cry about Roy Brown? Sure. Yeah. Roy Brown's Good Rockin' Tonight, a lot of people don't hear it in their head when they hear the song Good Rockin' Tonight. They don't hear it by Roy Brown. They hear it by uh, Lloyd Price, mm-hmm. who also did Laudy, 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 Miss Cloudy, which okay. is a real classic out of New Orleans. And again, out of the Cosmo Matassa Studios. The song by Roy Brown, Good Rockin' Tonight, goes to number one. Mm-hmm. It, it really does, which is why a lot of people believe it to be one of the first rock and roll songs, if not the first rock and roll song. It came out in 1947. Well, Roy Brown went to Lloyd Price to begin with 
and said, would you please record the song? And Lloyd Price was already a star. And he said, you know, go on, get lost with this song, blah, 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 blah. Well, it goes to number one. And then, of course, Lloyd Price comes back with his hat in his hand and said, okay, can I record it now? (laughs) Lloyd Price records it. It goes to number one. His version goes to number one. So it's one of the first songs to go to number one twice by two artists. Great. So you'd think Roy Brown would be a man in the music industry and would make a ton of money. His contracts were horrible. He did dumb things and ended his life as a door-to-door encyclopedia salesman. Oh, uh, wow. Right, and pitched himself as Roy Brown, the rock and roll man. And, you know, I'm sure he made a living, Mm -hmm. but nothing as to what he should have done. Not even close to what Lloyd Price did, of course. Exactly. Lloyd Price did very, very well for himself. So, yeah. Now, we're in the break. And I seldom play music in the break. So a tip to our affiliates out there. I'm going to play a song, and once the song is over, I'm going to go straight into the one-minute break. So that's where you'll stick your commercials in there. So I said that many artists split from their hometowns or their home states, and they made their way down to J&M Studios because there was this belief there was magic in the air at the studios. Mm -hmm. Jerry Lee Lewis, you ever been to Faraday, Louisiana? I've heard of it. I, I went to Faraday, Louisiana. They took the old post office downtown and turned it into sort of a, here's everything that's happened in terms of music in Faraday. And it's well worth a couple of bucks that goes in. Huh. And you can actually, for a couple of bucks, tour Jerry Lee Lewis's home where hmm. he grew up. Okay. Did you do that? <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Well, Jerry Lee Lewis, when he was 17 years old, a lot of people think, well, the first place he recorded was Sun Records. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. No. Not true. At 17 years old, made his way down to New Orleans mm. to the J&M Studios and recorded, as far as I could find, two songs. One was called Don't Stay Away, and the other was a New Orleans-esque piano piece called New Orleans Boogie was recorded in 1952 in the J&M studio on the baby grand that sat inside of the 15 by 16 room. So I'm going to play it. It's only about a minute, minute and a half. It's Jerry Lee Lewis. What everybody believes, you know, every time you say first, you got to wink. What people believe is his first recording. We'll play it and out of it, we'll go right into our breaks. So who's listening to us? WYAP, Clay, West Virginia, and WBSD, Burlington, Wisconsin. This is Many People Believe, the first recording of Jerry Lee Lewis here on Rock School. Okay, coming out of the break, I said that there were two songs that Matassa recorded at J&M that many people believe could be the first rock and roll song. Roy Brown's Good Rockin' Tonight, that was in 1947. Mm -hmm. There is another one, people say is sort of a seminal moment in the world of rock that came out of New Orleans. I think that's another reason why people don't really take these songs as the first rock and roll song because they're from New Orleans. They sound New Orleans-y. Right, they have jazz influence. Right, as we said at the beginning of the show, take New Orleans music. In New Orleans, it works like a dream. Mm -hmm. Move it to Albuquerque. 
move it to Indianapolis. Which just move doesn't it to fit. Yeah, yeah, does it work? It's this is like this city is an island unto itself, and mm-hmm. we like that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it, it brings people in. It's you know, it, it's it's one of those things where you say to somebody, "I'm moving to Louisiana." They kind of go, mm, "Okay, I'm moving to New Orleans." It's as if you're going to heaven itself. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic! You know that kind of thing. In 1949, local legend Fats Domino wanders into the J&M studio, sits down at the the keyboard of the Grand, and if there's anyone who knows what to do with all 88 keys, it's this guy, and he records the single The Fat Man. It goes to number two on the R&B charts and becomes, as far as I could find, Cosmo Matassa's first million-selling single. Is the Fat Man the first rock and roll song? A lot of people believe so. I don't. But a lot of people believe so. It sounds like this here on Rock School. Okay, we need one more to get us to the bottom of the hour because back then you couldn't have a song over three minutes. Mm -hmm. That's the recording format wouldn't allow it. Now, later on, he moves his J&M studio Mm -hmm. to uh, a new location on Governor Nichols Street. And also, while he's at J&M, he does upgrade to get to tape. So the songs do get a little bit longer. But I'm looking down the run here. The longest song I have on here is three minutes and ten seconds. So he doesn't move out of that short hit format very far, even when he could. I don't doubt somebody who knows him a lot better than I do will find a four and a five minute song. Right. I don't doubt it. But the hits, we're talking three minutes. You know, if you're going to have a hit, you got to make it quick. So they cut it down to 305, as Billy Joel said. <laughs> so I'll play one that I know you know. Mm-hmm. What's the what's the statement that you hear? Laissez bon temps rouler? Let the good times roll. Close enough there. Sure. Close enough. I, was it, did I say it wrong? Laissez Laisse bon temps rouler. Is it bon temps? Bon I thought it was bon temps. I'm okay. looking that up. We are, I'm well, looking well, that <laughs> up. I am looking that up. Well, they're saying it here in the song. It's Shirley and Lee. Come on, baby. Let the good times roll here on Rock School. Okay, bottom of the hour coming out of uh, Shirley and Lee, Let the Good Times Roll. All right, we looked up Les Bon 
Tom. Tom Roulet. Now, are you saying it with an M or an N? An M. An N. Bonton mm-hmm. Roulet. We found four different pronunciations of it. Les bon Ton Roulet, yours. Mm-hmm. Les bon Tom with an M, because there's an M in the word when you spell it. Right. Les bon Temp Roulet. And then Les bon. there was one more, Temps I think it was, something right. like that. Well, what they had, what they, the people on, online, had an old poster that was put up around town in New Orleans, I guess telling non-locals, tourists, mm-hmm. how to say it. And the how to say it for non-locals was temps or temps. I guess trying mm-hmm. to throw in some false Cajun French. That's the concept of saying New Orleans nolens, that, uh, yeah. false, that false Cajun French. Uh, so... You know, I, I guess I'm wrong, or you're using a dialect from your hometown. I think it, it could be regional. You know, okay. where I'm from, it's very, very Cajun. Well, right now there are people <laughs> who are listening who are absolutely losing their mind. Yeah. Joe, you're wrong. Shut up. We're and sorry about that. So I will. <laughs> uh, it's time for seven days, seventy seconds. Uh, my name is Joe Burns. You are. Morning, Haven't done this for four weeks because of the specialty shows a little while back. But these are the rock and roll dates now: September twenty second, all the way through September twenty eighth. I believe you have Monday, Monique. Go. September 22nd, 1958. After receiving special permission from the U.S. Army, Elvis Presley gave one last press conference at the Military Ocean Terminal in Brooklyn. He then joined the rest of the 3rd Armored Division on the USS General Randall. September 23, 1980. Bob Marley collapses on stage during a concert at the Stanley Theater, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. September 24th, 1988, the Hollies were at number one on the UK singles chart with He Ain't Heavy, He's My Brother after the song was used on a UK TV beer commercial. The song was originally a hit in 1969 and featured a young Elton John on piano. September 25, 1970, the first episode of The Partridge Family was shown on television featuring Shirley Jones, David Cassidy, Susan Day, Danny Bonaducci. Mm. September 26, 1968, Rolling Stone Brian Jones was fined 50 pounds after being found guilty of possession of cannabis. Oh, no. <laughs> September 27th, 1986, Metallica bass player Cliff Burton is crushed to death after the band's tour bust crashed between Stockholm and Copenhagen. September 28th, 1968, American radio DJ Dewey Phillips dies of heart failure aged 42. So what? Why do we care? In July of 1954, Dewey Phillips is the first DJ to play Elvis Presley on the radio. He played That's All Right and Blue Moon of Kentucky. I'll be singing that all day now. You Will you? Mm-hmm. Okay, back into music. I stated that a lot of artists split from their hometown or split from their home state and came to the J&M Studios, Cosimo Matassa's studio, and said, I need this sound. I need whatever you're creating. This is one of those artists. This guy left Georgia, showed up, said, you know, create it for me. Make me a star. You know some of his songs. You may not have known those Jerry Lee Lewis tunes, but you know these. Here's the first one he recorded. Slipping and a sliding, keeping and a hiding. It's a little Richard here on Rock School. Richard, and by the way, he'll come up again just a little bit further into the future. Did you know that many recording studios, many labels had their own house bands? 
a group of people that backed up all the artists. I actually did know that. Okay. Motown had the Funk Brothers. Mm -hmm. The Muscle Shoals Recording Studio had the Swampers, mm -hmm. right? Stax had Booker T and the MGs. Mm -hmm. Well, Cosmo Matassa had his group, and they were called The Click. The Click was run by trumpeteer Dave Bartholomew. And Dave Bartholomew was sort of this well-known guy who had a series of jazz musicians who worked around him and were brought in to back up artists inside of J&M Studio. Okay. And it was this group of people who were, jazz, again, jazz musicians mm -hmm. who were so good at what they did that they could practice it twice, one, two, three, go, okay. and from the front to the back, not make a mistake. And furthermore, they had to be able to do blues, jazz, rock, whatever they wanted. And right. what's interesting is they had no idea that they were creating this new sound. And I'll, I'll talk about that a little later on when we return to Little Richard. But here's the thing. Why was Matassa able to get these musicians? Well, the saxophone player, his name was Herbert Hardesty or Hardesty. I'm not sure which way you would say it. This is what he says, and I'm sort of going to paraphrase his quote. They, the musicians, were all members of Local 496. That was the musicians' union that forbade any of them to record at night. Well, that made sense. Well, the reason was you had to record during the day, okay. and then you weren't allowed to record at night, so you could all be free to play at night. Oh, okay. Go out to the bars, go out to a wedding, go out to what have you. Okay. You were only supposed to play for three hours at a time. Again, a union thing, so you're not overworked. Okay. Fine. He stated, for that three-hour session with mm -hmm. Matassa, you could make $41 and a quarter. So what? That was more money in those hours than you could make from a week of gigging. So hmm. why did Matassa have the best people? Because he paid them. Right. It's that simple. It says here Dave, Bar Dave Bartholomew would hand some of his people $82 on a lender's fee. My guess that means I'll give you double what mm -hmm. you're supposed to have because I want you to come back. I'm assuming that's what a lender's fee meant. It doesn't okay. explain what that meant. So for this three-hour session, they would produce four songs, which is fairly amazing. A three-hour right. session would barely lay down the rhythm track today. Mm -hmm. uh, guitarist Earl McLean stated it was a routine thing. You played so many choruses, singing them to the horn solos, and then go back so the singer could hear it again, take out the riff, da 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 But at the end of the day, you had between 40 and $80 in your pocket, which you would never get playing at the club. So That's crazy. why the best musicians? Because he was smart enough to pay them. Mm -hmm. So, Smiley Lewis. Again, you probably don't know it by Smiley Lewis, but this is where it came from. I hear you knocking here on Rock School. Coming out of Smiley Lewis, I hear you knocking. Now, I was talking about the click beforehand, mm -hmm. De Bartholomew and his group of players. I also talked earlier about Little Richard. Yeah. Great. Well, Little Richard had hits, so he came back to record again. 
Absolutely. With the click. Okay. Now, you might hear that uh, Little Richard's song sounds a little bit better than some of the other ones. He was recording when Matassa had moved to tape. So he was recording on better equipment. However, when Little Richard began to have hits, I mean, Mm -hmm. he really began to hit. He began to have one after another. It was made clear to the click, to the guys who were in the backup, that they were molding this new sound called rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And Dave Bartholomew, and again, I'm sort of paraphrasing what he said here, these guys were sort of knocked out that they had any impact on this thing called rock and roll. They had no idea what rock and roll was. Huh. He states, we we're all jazz players, and rock and roll, whatever that was, wasn't on our radar. We all lived in New Orleans, and we just simply played at the studio for cash. That's crazy. They existed within this, what, 30-mile range that is New Orleans, Mm -hmm. and this is their life. I mean, they went to work every day. These were blue-collar musicians, part of the union, play at night, play at Matassa's studio during the day for extra money, Mm -hmm. make the rent, pay the bills, you're a good guy, da-da-da. And here, because they got hooked up with this guy from, you know, Georgia, Mm Mm-hmm. They're shaping rock and roll. What's rock and roll? We don't know nothing. And <laughs> boom, boom, boom. It was also kind of the downfall because once they realized how great they were, mm-hmm. Tutti Fruity was, by the way, the last hits in the original studio after it moved. When the studio moved, and I told you it did move, it went right. up to a different place, the people of the click realized and were basically told, hey, look, you know, you could be doing real studio work. You could be doing real stuff. Mm-hmm. Most of them migrated to Los Angeles, and many of them still live there. Really? And they did real studio and session work up there. And, of course, we're making money hand over fist. You can't fault the men for doing that. Exactly. I mean, they left their hometown, but they went from... You know, nice, nice money and a, a comfortable life in New Orleans to serious cash in <laughs> Los Angeles. What would you have done? Mm-hmm. You know, you were the guy that played on Tutti Frutti, and thus I want you on my record. Now they're not living comfortably; they're living well. <laughs> so, I mean, I'd have probably done it too. And some people would shake their head and go, "I'd never do that." Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the money's not sitting in front of you on a table. Mm-hmm. So. This is Tutti Fruity here on Rock School. Wild bobbling, wild bobbling, bum bum, Tutti Fruity, oh good. Okay, coming into the second break, and man, are we late, because I wanted to tell the story of Little Richard and the click making their way out. Let me tell you a quick uh, story about Professor Longhair, and since I really like his stuff, I'll play Professor Longhair out of the break. Professor Longhair comes in to record. Now, you know Professor Longhair. Right. Okay, good. You you can't get through Mardi Gras season without being bombarded (laughs) with Professor Longhair music. Fine. 
Now, I told you inside of the little J&M studio, he had a grand piano. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, Professor Longhair was used to playing on an upright piano. Okay. And what he would do, if you ever played on a grand piano, there's nothing in front of your feet except the two pedals, which come straight down from the bottom of the piano. Okay. But there's no physical panel of wood. On an upright, there is. Mm-hmm. All I've done is taken a grand piano and turned it straight up, thus the name upright. Okay. okay. Well... According to Matassa, what he, Professor Longhair, used to do was kick the bottom of the piano with a side-to-side movement with his right foot. He would play a rhythm with the piano. He would bap it with his foot. It was just something he did, Mm -hmm. which, you know, kind of neat. They had a grand piano. What did they do? So what they had to do was go to the hardware store, buy clamps and a big piece of sheet good. You know, plywood, right. three-quarter-inch plywood, and clamp it across the two front legs of the piano so because he, he couldn't play. His foot wasn't doing something right, and it was throwing off his timing. That's crazy. So they clamped a big piece of wood, and once he could kick, uh-huh. he could do it just fine. Huh. And he could play it. Now, coming out of the break, we'll play a little bit for you from Professor Long here. Uh, and if you listen closely, you hear bat, bat, bat down at the bottom. It's it's faint, but it's in there. Remember, it's three three microphones. Right. So there was microphone bleed all over the place. Oh, yeah. The microphone on the other side of the you know studio picked up the piano and it picked up the vocal and all that. Half of the reason for the sound. So mm-hmm. who's listening to us here? W-O-U-B, Athens, Ohio. Who do you have? KLSU and Baton Rouge. Fantastic. Back in a minute on Rock School. Okay, last break here on Rock School. Uh, I got to tell you just about everything I haven't told you up to this point. As I said, Matassa leaves the music business in the 80s and goes to work at Matassa's Grocery. It's still there down in the uh, down in the French Quarter survived by his sons John Lewis and Michael seven grandchildren eight great grandchildren uh, he lost a lot of his money he tried to open his own record company Dover Records and it's estimated he lost just about a quarter million dollars wow. doing it which will you know you think by today's standards oh what's that But in the 1960s is when he opened it, and it really did a number to him. He moved out of J&M Studios, and he opened a second one, moved everything over to a second one uh, located on Governor Nichols. And it uh, it wasn't just you know as magical mm-hmm. which is really interesting because it's one of those things where they say that spaces have magic and Matassa himself he was always extremely humble about what he did he always gave the you know the the credit to the musicians and such because mm-hmm. he stated i didn't do anything I simply hired the right people. I set up the microphones. I turned the volume knobs, the potentiometers to just about halfway. Go. Mm -hmm. And off they went. Maybe there was magic in the room. You know, they say at the Brill Building, there's magic in the air. That's where they wrote all those songs. Maybe there is magic in the air at J&M Studios, Mm -hmm. at Sun Studios, at Muscle Shoals Sound Recordings. I mean, maybe there really is magic in the air. And for some reason, right there on Rampart, I don't know why, but there was magic in the air. And he, he found it. Yep. Just pure dumb luck fell over backwards into it. Or maybe it wasn't because they stated, they, those who played with him, Mm -hmm. he was just a different kind of person. He was never short. 
with musicians. Mm -hmm. He was never curt with them, gave them the time they needed. He was always nice. He sort of spoke their language and understood them, and people wanted to work with him. Yep, that can make all the difference. Right. He understood they needed to get paid, and they got paid. Mm -hmm. So he was the guy. He, He seemed to be what people needed, and he had magic in the room. There's really no other way to to put it. These ethereal things you can't buy, Mm -hmm. he seemed to have. And he died September 11th, age of 88. 88, I'll take it. Yep, he sounds like he had a good life. You betcha. We are going to finish up, like I said, with Professor Longhair Mardi Gras in New Orleans. That's that. Goodbye, Cosmo. Well done, Sound of New Orleans. That's it. Class is dismissed. I wanna see the body draw.